0: Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast for law students by law students. My name is Faraha Joy Sakai Sangweme, and I'm a Law Fellow at Georgetown Law University. My co-host, Dijana Richardson, is a third-year law student at CU Boulder.
1: In today's episode, we are in discussion with the Network for Victim Recovery of D.C., This is a local nonprofit dedicated to providing free, holistic, and trauma-informed advocacy, legal, and therapeutic services to survivors of all types of crime in the District of Columbia. This includes support for survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, identity theft, hate crimes, and homicide. Our guest speaker today is the Executive Director and co-founder of this amazing organization, Bridget Sum. She has over 15 years of experience advocating to ensure that those impacted by crime are afforded meaningful rights and access to supportive services to mitigate the negative effects of trauma post-victimization. We are going to focus on two broad themes today. First, her work as a crime victim's rights attorney. This topic will be especially interesting to young attorneys who want to explore alternatives within criminal law. Our second subtopic relates to trauma-informed lawyering. Bridget has provided hundreds of trainings on this topic and has spoken about NBRDC's podcast, Traumatized. This is particularly helpful for aspiring and practicing attorneys to learn about neurobiology of trauma how it impacts clients' legal goals, and tools to navigate through hard conversations when providing such clients' legal support. Thank you for joining us, Bridget, and welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So to kickstart our conversation, Bridget, could you tell us what drew you to found your current organization, which has been in existence since 2012?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. It's one that was a little bit of luck and a little bit of knowing enough of the rules to be able to navigate the right spaces, but also not knowing enough to uh, prevent me from being innovative. I think that's one of the things as lawyers and leaders that's sort of helpful. And what I'll just say is, you know, back in 2012, I was pretty much a baby lawyer. I'd been litigating for just under five years in Maryland where I practiced and some federal courts as well. And I was given the opportunity to help create a new organization that would focus on a gap area in DC, which was crime victims' rights litigation. And at the time, I worked for another organization that would be seeking similar funding. And so I quit what was a very sustainable, stable job. And I'm not a risk taker. So this was a bit unusual for me to apply for a seed grant. And at the time, we were able to get DC's Office of Victim Services to fund us at $200,000 to start a program that would meet all of the needs of any type of crime victim in the district. And we started with two and a half people, and those in the nonprofit space can appreciate what a part-time FTE is. And now we have over a $5 million budget and close to 50 employees. And I'll just say, I think that growth is one, a testament to the need in the community, but also a reflection of what is possible when you bring innovative problem solvers together, which is what I was lucky to be a part of. Really
0: incredible. Thank you for that background. My next question is, what legal skills and characteristics must one inspire to have to be an effective crime
2: victim's rights attorney? Yeah, for Joy, I really appreciate this question. What I will say is I think the first important conversation I always like to have with specifically with lawyers who are curious about what is a crime victims' rights lawyer, they're still pretty novel. And when you mention being a crime victims' rights litigator, sometimes folks look at you like you have three eyes because you're not the prosecutor, you're not the defense attorney. And these are lawyers who enter their appearance in criminal cases, and they represent the individual who was harmed independent of the government which is still despite the fact that this law is decades old really novel and unusual i think for lawyers because they don't learn about it in law school what i will say it requires is one a really in depth understanding of what the role of a crime victims rights litigator is i think there is this misperception that crime victims rights are about taking rights away from the accused and that is absolutely not what the intention of the laws are the laws exist very similarly to rights for defendants to ensure that the system, those actors within the system, whether it's law enforcement, prosecutors, or judges, that they do what they are obligated to do for an individual who's intersecting the system. And in a lot of ways, when we see rights being violated, they're often being violated by system actors. And our job as crime victims' rights lawyers is to ensure that there can be enforcement of those rights when there's not compliance. And so I think in a lot of ways, we've been able to find alignment in the work that's being done by defendants' rights lawyers across the country, because they want the same thing. They want rights on paper to be meaningful in practice. And that is what the role of a crime victim's rights lawyer is. And I'll just say in terms of like what characteristics might make someone succeed in this role, lawyers like rules. We like clarity. We like to, just like trauma-informed lawyering, we like to know what comes first, next, and last. That's not the space of a crime victim's rights litigator. So much of what we're doing hasn't been done yet. And so, the thing I will tell folks who are interested in this is you have to think about if the law doesn't tell you you can't do something, you need to be able to find a willingness to try it. And that's really, I think, what it takes is flexibility and adaptability when maybe the precedent or the case law doesn't exist yet to give you a roadmap of how you advocate for your client. Thank you so much,
0: Bridget. It seems like Since 2012, you've had such a wealth of experience with the work that you're doing and you've really just clarified to us the importance of working in a process where you have to balance the rights of an accused invariably and importance of the rights of the victim and that one does not necessarily take away from the other. So we appreciate that. I would like to know, what have been the highs and lows of your career?
2: Yeah, this is a hard question to think about. You know, the human brain is is hardwired in a funny way where we tend to sort of hold on to the hard things and it can be easier to sort of recall like the lows, I think, in a lot of ways because of how we're designed. And so I I wanted to focus first on like the high moment. And I I wanted to give a specific example of how the advocacy that we try to do in the district really, I think, does change and strengthen the community fabric. And for me, this goes back to 2018. The D.C. Council was holding a roundtable hearing to look at a law that had been passed in a couple of years prior called the Sexual Assault Victims' Rights Amendment Act. And this law changed some obligations of law enforcement, of MPD specifically. It also enhanced some of the rights for individuals who had experienced sexual violence, codified that there was specific legal privilege when they communicated with an advocate about their experience, that they could do that in a confidential way that would be legally protected. But when we went to survivors who were experiencing sexual assault in the district, they were still having negative experiences with the system, with the process, With how they got information, with how they understood again, what comes first, next, and last. And we worked with over a dozen individual survivors. We prepped them with a lot of support from our staff members on how to testify in front of the council, making decisions about their anonymity. Would they use their full name? Would they be on camera? Coordinating all those logistics to make it as safe and empowering as possible. And then we worked with those individuals to share their experience and. Ultimately, that resulted in the U.S. Attorney's Office changing the way that they reviewed cases, changing the way that survivors received information about the declination of cases. And so for me, why this is such a high is because I get a lot of deep sets of joy out of empowering the community who's being most impacted to ask for what they need for things to get better. And this was just such a beautiful illustration of how NPRDC can support those being impacted by things like sexual violence to change the way the community supports them. And I deeply believe that when we create systems that address unaddressed trauma, we prevent future harm. This is a core belief that we have as an organization. And I think this was just an example of how we now know that survivors engaging in this process are supposed to have a better experience because of the changes that other survivors advocated for on their behalf. That's a really important high because it really speaks to
0: involving the people who are really at the center of the issue, you know, the survivors. So I really understand why that is a high for you.
2: What would you consider to be a low You know, I think for me, I often think about specifically in the the area of trauma education. Trauma education changed me not only as a lawyer, but as a leader. And a lot of what I take into understanding my responsibility, my obligation to take care of the teams that are doing this work on the front lines every day, supporting them as a leader, is what I learned from really difficult experiences with leaders prior to being at MVRDC. And I think for me, What I constantly try to remember is how disempowering it was when I didn't feel like I had access to information I needed to do my job more fully. How disempowering it was when I felt like I didn't have the creative innovation advocacy support from my team to have creative solutions for my clients' needs and what they were asking for. And so I really try to channel some of what I would consider maybe lows in the leadership that was surrounding me and learn from that in a way that I'm able to kind of transition that maybe negative experience into something that's more positive for the team that I'm responsible for supporting. Thank you so much. So we've talked about what it means to
0: be a crimes victims' rights attorney. Could you tell us what is trauma-informed lawyering? There seems to be some kind of distinction, or is there really Or is it just the same side of a coin? I'm not sure. Could you tell us more about that?
2: Yes, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And what I will say is I deeply believe that any lawyer doing any type of practice of law can be a trauma-informed lawyer. You don't even have to be a litigator, but it's most useful when you have an ethical obligation to represent an individual or a client. And essentially what it means to be a trauma-informed lawyer There's really kind of four, five pillars. We've added a fifth one, but there's research that's been done by SAMHSA, and they really looked at how do you create a trauma-informed approach within, originally it was within the healthcare context, but this approach can be overlaid into lots of different other areas, including lawyers. And it essentially means that we realize that trauma has consequences on individuals, their lives, and their families we recognize that their interaction with us is either going to mitigate their history of trauma, compound it, or we can actually be someone that actively resists causing more trauma to them. And this is going to require us to really make sure that we have put in place policies, procedures that are actively going to resist re-traumatizing someone who's coming to us with a lived experience of trauma. And then we have to revisit That experience with those clients. And so, what that is, is just like you said earlier, we're going to the individuals who have been impacted and asking them how they are experiencing us as a lawyer. But at its core, being a trauma informed lawyer simply means that I understand and recognize the way I am experienced as a lawyer can either help support my client in navigating their legal goals or it can make it more difficult. And there's lots of sort of specifics and concrete examples about how we do that but the why is that we're creating a more trusted attorney-client relationship.
0: Something that I'm sure a lot of victims will deeply appreciate to build that trust between the lawyer and and the victim, especially in sensitive cases. I wonder how widespread this concept is of trauma-informed lawyering across the USA, how how embraced it has been. Uh, Do you have any tracking of that or is just the DC area and how it's been embraced within your institution. And the second arm of my question would be, are there any structural barriers to this kind of lawyering?
2: Yeah, both great questions. I'll kind of tackle the first one. And, you know, one thing I'll highlight too is simply, there is a bit of a misperception that only lawyers working with individuals who have kind of expected experiences of trauma, that would be things like victimization, we might think about domestic violence, sexual assault, homicide survivors, but I would proffer that every lawyer who interacts with clients needs to have this understanding, whether it's clients who experience poverty, discrimination, any experience that is going to lead them to have had a potential exposure to trauma or circumstances of trauma, Simply living within systemic racism and the experience of that daily can cause someone to live with trauma. And so it's a deep understanding of who our clients are, what their lived experiences are, how their identities shape those lived experiences. It doesn't have to be that the legal issue they're seeking support from is what we would think about as a trauma exposure. It could simply be that person's lived experience. And so our ability to treat them in a trauma-informed way and we understand the neurobiology of trauma is going to help them be able to accomplish their legal goals and to feel supported in a way that the research tells us, Dr. Sandra Bloom's research tells us, when we can create that empowering experience where they feel agency and control over their interaction with their lawyer, they are more likely to engage in help-seeking behavior. And this is true for any type of trauma that someone might experience. And to your question you know about how common this is, it is becoming more common, I would say, in the last decade. We're seeing the ABA kind of be supportive of evaluating resources and how we provide these resources. We're seeing more articles about the impact of the neurobiology of trauma on memory and memory recall, which I think is a really complex understanding that our system hasn't fully immersed itself in. But my dream and hope would be that We actually teach trauma-informed lawyering in law school. There are very few law schools in the country that have a specific curriculum focused on what does that look like? How do I do that as a lawyer? Whether I'm a defense attorney, prosecutor, or someone representing corporations, right, who are people that have lived experiences. And so ultimately, my dream is that not only is it taught every law school, but it's tested on the bar exam. And we all know if it gets on the bar exam, we have to understand it. And I believe this could transform not only legal systems, but the way that clients engaging in in these systems experience that process. And so we're not there yet. We have some work to do. So that would be sort of my answer to part one. I think a lot of the systemic barriers that are preventing us from getting there, kind of the second part of your question, is that we have been taught a concept about trauma that is not consistent with science. We have been taught through myths related to you know, rape culture, other sort of ideas and beliefs that are not consistent with anti-racism and anti-oppression. All of these biases impact the way that we think about who experiences trauma and why. And we need to completely obliterate that old understanding and reshape and reform what does it mean to be a survivor of trauma. Because the, the reality about trauma is it's so common, but so unique. So while many of us have that experience and have never been validated or acknowledged in that experience, when your lawyer can do that and then understand that you will uniquely need different things to feel supported in the process and you co-create that plan with your lawyer, how you need to experience them to be empowered in this process, again, it completely revolutionizes, one, the attorney-client trust and relationship but our ability to be successful in actually accomplishing our client's legal goals.
1: Thank you so much, Roger. What advice would you give to students who may have an interest
2: in your line of work? First and foremost, I would say, use your law school experience to get deeply embedded in practical experience working with individuals. That is really hard unless you have a great opportunity to do a clinic model. A clinic model provides a great opportunity to sort of, one, start to understand trauma-informed lawyering and what it means when you're empowering someone else. But if you don't have that opportunity, reach out to the community providers in your community, organizations like MVRDC, but there are others around the country And find ways to intern and learn from those working directly with communities impacted and experiencing trauma so that you can start to build these sort of skills. Because ultimately, the most marketable lawyers are the ones that have had direct client experience. And so I I find that sort of space of having done it, having experience working with clients is really helpful. And I would also say, like, find an opportunity to take trauma-informed lawyering education we offer it in the community for free a couple of times a year, and there are other you know, pathways to get that education as well. But regardless of the type of law you fall into, whether it be public interest or something else, enhancing those skills, no matter what you end up doing, is just going to make you a better, more effective lawyer.
1: Great. Thank you. Are you able to discuss with us any opportunities that law students might be able to participate in with Network for Victim Recovery,
2: such as internships or job opportunities? Yeah, thank you for asking the question. We do offer legal internships and we pay students. We believe in paying everyone for their work. That's a value point of ours. It's probably not enough that we would all like to be making in the public interest world, but we do post on our website, nvrdc.org, opportunities for internship and other career opportunities. And in addition to that, I will just say that we're very excited to be launching essentially the equivalent of a Court Watch program, but it's to evaluate how the criminal legal system is integrating and considering the rights of individual crime victims. And so if you're interested in volunteering to help be a part of that program, that's something that's going to be coming in the future, as well as other volunteer opportunities. And again, if there are law students that are part of law student groups or even want to make a recommendation to faculty around trauma-informed education, we're really lucky to do that work with a lot of the local clinics. And if we can bring that training and resource to you as a tool, we're always happy to be available to offer that.
1: Thank you so much, Bojo. Are there any last-minute thoughts or words of advice that you'd like to share before we wrap up?
2: I think the only thing to both of you is my deep appreciation. I know that making a conversation like this available and real and accessible to folks takes time and energy and your willingness to raise these conversations so that law students, legal professionals have the opportunity to learn and grow and how we do our jobs better is something that I think takes a big commitment. And I'm really appreciative of your time and energy.
1: Thank you so much, Bridget Stump for joining us today on Let's Refit and sharing your insights and thoughts about your very important work as it relates to trauma-informed lawyering. To our audience in the DC region and elsewhere, thank you for listening.
2: Thanks so much for having me. The DC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in leadership trainings, substantive content programming, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org.